This is Laura Anderson, president of Veterinary Career Services, a recruiting firm for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and management professionals. Please join me for our podcast series, Is Veterinary Medicine Ready for a Chief Culture Officer? The top priority today for veterinarians who are seeking a new position is hospital culture. So what exactly does that mean? How do we find out the true culture of a veterinary hospital? I am interviewing chief culture officers in various industries to get a better understanding of workplace culture, how it can be changed, and how to research the culture of a veterinary hospital if you are looking for a new position. We hope you enjoy this series. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Pavia, hi, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Sure. Thank you for speaking with me today and for being so generous with your time. I'm so excited about this podcast series and learning more about how accomplished specialists such as yourself get to where you are today. So presently, not only are you the medical director at the Blue Pearl Pet Hospital in downtown New York City, you are also the intern coordinator for the New York region. That's right. Right. Yep. (laughs) So how much time do you spend managing versus uh, practicing? I have my full-time, my full-time job as a surgeon. That's four days a week plus one night on call. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have Mondays are my admin day and I probably spend uh, several hours through spread throughout, throughout the weekend Mondays as well on the um, medical directorship as well as the intern program. And then really anytime I have any downtime, uh, during my regular work week, I'm I'm checking my different emails and, you know, going through my text messages. And in these days, everything is constant connectivity all the time. So I'm getting getting lots of texts and lots of lots of emails, um, you know, throughout the, the week and the weekend. So it can be it can be a lot. It can be kind of a nonstop onslaught if I let it. Um, and, I, and I do try not to let it at, at all times. So I, I am I am working on that on that work life balance as well. Do you have any secrets on time management? (laughs) Oh, secrets. I I think surgery residency, quite frankly, does a really good job of teaching you time management. Uh Um, If you don't have great time management during your surgery residency, during, you know, all that time of studying and and trying to have a little bit of a life at the same time, then you're probably not going to you're probably not going to make it um, or you're not going to be a a functional person by the end of it. So. Uh, yeah, just learning to be very efficient, I think. I'm working really well on deadlines. So I have a slightly non-traditional way of getting here where, where I am. Um, I was a humanities major as an undergrad. Um, and so I worked a lot on deadlines for things that maybe I shouldn't have left until the deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I, you know, fr- from that, as well as from actually from being a surgeon, working under pressure and working with short timelines is something I'm not just comfortable with. I, I kind of enjoy. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, by by that, by virtue of that, what I've learned to do is, and I'm not saying that I'm particularly good at it, but I've gotten a lot better over the years, is carving that time out and say, this is the time when I'm not going to do the work things. And then however much time I have left over for the work, it's going to have to be enough time. 
Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. So what I'm not good at is compartmentalizing. I do think a lot about my work when I'm not there. Um, one thing that's wonderful about veterinary medicine, but certainly can be a challenge in terms of having a little bit more of that separation is that we do tend to be very close with our colleagues. And a lot of my, my closest friends are my colleagues. So by Uh definition, then work, work bleeds into your, your social life as well. But I don't see that as a negative. I, I actually see that as one of the best things about veterinary medicine. So you did your internship and your residency at AMC. I did. I did. And I worked there when I was 17 as a volunteer um, in the radiology department, actually, um, right between right between high school and college. So I'm a native New Yorker um, and I've had some fun jobs in the veterinary industry on my on my way. (laughs) Uh huh. Uh huh. So you probably did you always know you wanted to be a veterinary surgeon? Apparently I did. Um, my, my mother loves to tell a story of me as an extremely hyperactive child. Um, the only way she could get any peace would be is if she um, set me up with all of my stuffed animals. And they were only stuffed animals. Dolls were not acceptable in, in uh-huh. my childhood. It was uh-huh. only stuffed animals. Um, and she would give me a box of Kleenex and a roll of scotch tape. And an hour later, all of my stuffed animals would be bandaged. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, they'd have elaborate orthopedic injuries, I guess. Um, Uh So I suppose even before I knew, I knew. Um, But I actually thought I wanted to be an equine surgeon. Uh Yeah. So there was a period of time in veterinary school um, when I really thought I was going to go into equine medicine. Uh-huh. You spent some time at New Bolton, I believe. Mm -hmm. I did. Uh I actually worked there for a summer before applying to veterinary school. um, And I had a really great experience there. Really wonderful mentorship. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time there. Mm-hmm. Stepping back over your career, what has been the most challenging aspect? Oh, I think one of the most challenging things was back when I was an undergrad, um, and I was trying to do a double major in all the pre-med requirements and get an English lit degree, mm-hmm. um, from Yale. And I realized, and I also wanted to be riding horses and I was on two teams and I also wanted to, you know, be a, be a person and have, have some friends. And I realized I could not do it all. Um, mm-hmm. and I had to make a decision that I was going to take a post back and finish up my science requirements after college. Um, and I, there was a period of time when I was, I was sure I wasn't going to get into veterinary school. You know, this was before the time when they, when they really appreciated having multiple perspectives, um, and second degrees and, and things like that. And I was really terrified that I wasn't a biochem major. I wasn't a physics major or something like that. And that no veterinary school is going to look twice at my application. Um, mm-hmm. so that, that was a really, really hard time, um, that I had to sort of prioritize, you know, I knew I was, I knew veterinary medicine was going to be my life for the rest of my life. Um, and I only had four years to, you know, study architecture and art of the ancient Near East and, mm-hmm. you know, the Victorian novel. Um, but although that was one of the hardest decisions I made in a really hard year coming out of, out of university, you know, my friends and colleagues were, were going on to grad school in their first jobs. And I was living at home with my parents and, and taking organic chemistry that turned into one of the smartest things I ever did. Uh huh. How long did it take you to finish up those uh, prerequisites? It took me one year. One year. That's- one year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I ended up being the least qualified member of my incoming class in veterinary medicine. I had taken the fewest prerequisites of anyone <laughs> in my incoming class. 
<laughs> so I could only go to Penn because they had the lowest requirements. I had never taken stats. I had never taken biochem. And I'd only ever taken one semester of organic chemistry. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it turned out okay. <laughs> it turned out okay. I just, I just had to work really hard that first year in veterinary school. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was worth it. And I'm really happy. I think it, I think it gave me a lot of perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's made me more efficient as a communicator, both to clients as well as in my medical record keeping, mm-hmm. um, just writing. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone tells doctors how much they write and how mm-hmm. much that's a part of your job. Um, and also being a little bit more well-rounded in terms of my background and my interests, um, those interactions with clients, I think, are are a little bit easier um, as well. What has been the most rewarding aspect of your career? Well, I mean, I'm a surgeon, so mm-hmm. um, I, I have a very much a, a of a fix it mentality. Mm -hmm. I love task driven performance driven outcome, you know, based tasks. Um, and that is the most rewarding thing is when, you know, I see, and, and it's, it's also the, it's also the, the, the client experience and the human animal bond, they come in and there's a dog or a cat with a problem or in my residency, a chinchilla, a ferret, a gerbil, whatever it was. Um, Uh and there's something, wrong. And by the time they leave the hospital, that's not wrong anymore. I've, I've actually been able to make a measurable difference in the quality of life for both the, the pet and the owner. Um, and that is incredibly gratifying. I mean, just as an example last week, also that there is a lot of, it's a lot of teamwork involved in it too. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are the cases that really, that really kind of warm, warm my heart. So as an example is just last week, I did bilateral femoral fracture repairs on a dog who had actually fallen off of a roof and he was a pneumothorax and a hemoabdomen and he even got air in his brain and he was on the ventilator. He was, you know, had severe neurological abnormalities. So this is a dog who, you know, critical care, neurology, internal medicine, everyone was involved in saving this dog's life. And then I you know, went in and fixed both of his femoral fractures and we all got to watch him go home. Those are the things that I think, you know, bringing everything together, everything you've learned, those are the cases that really make the impact and and make you keep going to work when maybe not every case has a happy ending. Um, And maybe not every owner is, you know, sunshine um, and rainbows to deal with. But those are the ones that really you remind yourself why you do this every day. Yeah. And um, you're touching a little bit on compassion or compassion fatigue and, oh, and yeah. mental well-being. Do you have any secrets that, that you could share with us as to how you stay at the top of your game? One thing that, that my colleagues do do joke with me about is that I don't have that surgeon mentality. I think, honestly, the, the surgeons who probably have the easiest time of it are the ones who are able to compartmentalize and sort of can think of their cases as pure physics. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can't do that. Um, I actually do find myself getting emotionally involved and, and getting attached to my patients in ways that I have to watch myself with that. Um, Because if I do get attached and I do empathize with owners completely to that extent with every case, I can't keep going that way. Um, Mm -hmm. So do I have the answer to that? Absolutely not. 
but I, I do find ways of kind of managing it. So, Mm -hmm. and this is something where I'm very grateful to my excellent staff. You know, let's say I have a patient who I've seen on an appointment the day before and comes in for surgery the next day. I may, you know, I've done a full physical exam the day before. What I'll do is I'll listen to them. I'll check their labs, um, you know, with with my stethoscope, make sure nothing major has changed. But I literally won't look my patient in the face that day sometimes, right? Like if Mm -hmm. it's a really critical surgery, I'll have to just divorce myself from the reality of them as a living being and just say, this is a technical problem. You know, it's like a rock climber facing a difficult wall. I just break it down into its integral steps. And then Uh when I'm done with the challenge, it's like, don't look down, right? Right. So (laughs) you can't look down. If you're in the middle of the surgery and you look down, you're, you're going to have second, you're going to have second thoughts and you're not going to be able to do your job. So, yeah, I mean, you do go into that zone at a certain point and you stop thinking about them as, as, as their full beings. And then when you're done with the surgery, you can go right back to it, (laughs) but you do have to create a little bit of emotional distance Uh for sure. Do you listen to music when you are in the surgery suite? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of surgeons do, and they have their specific artists that they like to listen to, but I've never really asked, (laughs) but I would imagine that helps get you in the zone a little bit, just like an athlete. It does. It absolutely does. Um, and I, I mean, I have a lot of music going on in my head all the time. I played the violin for 17 years, um, growing up. So music is something that is very emotionally powerful for me and like gets me in different spaces. And I have very different music that I listen to when I'm at home by myself versus Uh when I'm at the gym versus when I'm in the OR. So for me, like being in the OR is a very team-based experience. So I'll often ask people, hey, what do you like to listen to? What do you want to listen to? Something that, you know, brings people together and everyone can, you know, enjoy the music and, and kind of get into it from that perspective. Um, so yeah, yeah. Music is definitely important. I play a lot of like, uh, you know, music of the seventies and eighties and nineties, <laughs> you know, and depending on the age of my intern, sometimes we'll have, you know, like a, like a, a Britney Spears in sync <laughs> surgery day. Um, right. So, and then now and now they're, they're getting younger and younger and I'm like, Oh, one direction. No, I'm not, I'm not playing that. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. It, it's fun. It, it lightens, it lightens the mood, um, but it also is focusing as well. Right, right. Is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, I would have, I would have worried less. Oh, that's very insightful. Every Just single to- step of the way, I would have worried less. I would have realized that there's so many ways to do things right. And there's so many ways to do things wrong. And agonizing over making every decision perfectly is not worth your energy and your time. And that just, yeah, to have, have more perspective, I think, the whole way through. That's terrific. I'm sure that will help a lot of people. What advice would you give residents who are just finishing their residencies mm. and starting their first jobs? That's a tough one. Um, but don't expect that your residency has taught you everything you need to know. Uh-huh. Um, that was one of the hardest things. I came out of my residency and I kept on seeing cases that I'd never seen before. And I, you know, said, oh my goodness, am I supposed to already know how to do all these things? Absolutely not. Your residency is there to teach you the skills with which you then figure out how to tackle the problems you've never seen before. And one of those skills that your residency teaches you is knowing who to ask and when. 
that you have resources. That's why you were in a training program. And despite the fact that you're no longer in a training program, by no means does it, does it mean that you have to have all the answers. Uh, you know, one of, one of the most gratifying parts of my job right now is having been out, what is it now, five years, I'm kind of right in the middle. I have my colleagues who have been practicing for 20, 30 years, and they're great resources for me. My co-surgeon who I'm working with in my hospital now was my intern when I was a third year resident. So I get uh-huh. to be that resource for her. And then I'll have, you know, a senior surgeon who's been practicing 30 years. When a new plate technology comes out, he'll give me a call and ask me how to use the, the new plate technology. So I think coming out of residency, that is one of the really most difficult things is when do you ask for help and when do you realize, like, you got this. You can figure this out uh-huh. on your own. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, I think that's hard. But also, once again, worry less. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. feel bad about asking for help. Don't feel like it makes you any less of a surgeon. Um, just, yeah, just just feel feel comfortable realizing that everyone else has been in your shoes and no one is judging you. So it sounds like most of your colleagues were res- when you started out after you finished your residency were receptive to to being there for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, as- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if, and that's another thing is when you're selecting a job, your first job out of residency, um, it sounds really trite and it sounds like one of those things of like lists of questions to ask in an interview, but really figuring out what the mentorship is going to be like. I applied for a couple of jobs out of residency where I was going to be the only surgeon or sometimes the only specialist. Uh-huh. And I'm so happy I didn't take those jobs. Because I think that that is where you lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress when you're by yourself. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So looking for a job in which even if you don't have another surgeon on site, um, making sure there's someone where you can always pick up the phone and ask if you need to. Well, terrific. I'm just so thrilled that you sat down and spoke with me today. Is there anything? Do you see any big changes in veterinary surgery on the horizon? Oh, that's a good question. I, I One of the big questions that I have is, are we going to go the way of human medicine? Are we going to become further and further subspecialized? Um, is soft tissue going to break off from orthopedics at some point? Um, you know, are, are we going to have more fellowships? Like right now, there's a surgical oncology fellowship. There are some interventional radiology mm-hmm. fellowships, things like that. Um, I'm really curious to see which direction it, it goes, because as our as our body of knowledge grows, um, and as the complexity of the techniques that we're able to perform grows, I, I do think that greater levels of training are going to be, you know, required and and desired with that sort of larger amount that we could know. So I'd be interested to see if outside of, of teaching hospitals, if more people divide up their specialties going forward. I think that would be interesting to see. Is that something that's being discussed, I mean, commonly now among your colleagues? Um, you know, less less in private practice. Right. Um, okay. Because it's just a matter of of availability and scheduling and numbers. You know, if, if there's only two surgeons in a practice, it's very difficult to divide up soft tissue and orthopedics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also one of the big issues as well, um, you know, working in private practice from a financial perspective. Orthopedics is just more profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to be healthier patients, um, lower overhead, lower nursing costs, things like that. So that that is another issue is that probably that will take longer to split out in a private practice than it would in, in an academic salary-based model. 
So I'm not sure that really there's a lot of push towards that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of people who might want to do just one or the other. I certainly have colleagues who, you know, only want to do orthopedics. And if they never saw another spleen again, they would be very happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I I, I don't know. I think I think it'll take a while. I think like everything else in veterinary medicine, um, there's there's going to be a delay between human medicine and veterinary medicine. But I'm, I'm interested to see which way that goes. Also really interested to see where our you know future veterinary nursing goes, um, like with the veterinary nurse initiative and the, mm-hmm. you know the, the push for changing the nomenclature from technician to nurse, and you know as as we've talked about mm-hmm. <laughs> off, uh, out of out of context of this conversation, um, just the future of veterinary nursing I think is is a really really interesting place for for us to monitor going forward. I agree. Well, terrific. Uh, Thank you again for speaking with me today. And um, it's been interesting to learn about your path. Um, You've had such a a non-traditional path, so (laughs) it's fun to hear about it. Yeah, well, it's been it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, terrific. All right. Okay. thank you so much, Dr. Pavia. My absolute pleasure. (laughs) Bye. Okay. bye bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast in the series, Is Veterinary Medicine Ready for a Chief Culture Officer? If you have any feedback or would like more information about our services, or if you're considering a new position, please feel free to contact me at laura at vetcareerservices.com or directly on my cell, 804-833-0585. Stay tuned for the next episode.